question for you guys. And one thing I was confused about was the episode where you guys are kind of like visualizing the future and having a billion dollars. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense because you're talking about building it over three generations. So you're not going to have a Lambo. You're not going to have apartments all over the world. Potentially your grandchildren will, or your great grandchildren will. And, you know, is that actually desirable? Because, you know, if, if they did nothing to earn that, what is their life going to be like? Yeah. And I think just the fact that this compounding plan will not lead to the realization within our lifetimes of the goal right. explains why we and most other people don't even start investing at all. And in a way, this podcast through all of our wonderful interviewees like you is a way to explore whether it is even possible to come up with a, a system to trick us to falsely activate the instincts that are favorable in achieving that goal. Right, right. I was just going to add to that and say the idea actually came from a book by a guy called William Bonner. And it's called- yeah, I, I heard the podcast and I looked up the book and all of that. So yeah, no, I'm familiar with, with the concept. I, I read an outline about it that I think it was a blogger. I forgot his name. He wrote about it and, and took away some key points. So I thought it was great. Like I, I actually wanted to talk to you about this because I think the idea is awesome. It's just that I was just trying to get my head around. It seemed like there was two different ideas at play based on you guys talking about, well, what would it be like to be a billionaire? It's like, well, you're not going to be a billionaire. It's, it's not your money. It's going to be this future generation's money. So you're going to live like a pauper to make this them billionaires. Another, it's another struggle between two extremes. It's interesting how your interviewers brought up this. There's the balance between risk and optimism. There's right. the balance between the slog of the first generation and the untold riches and fortune of the third generation. Right. And where do you get to activity in this fight between these two extremes. When you were mentioning optimism, you reminded me also of Kathy Wood, and this is to take things back to the start, because one thing I actually also appreciate about Kathy Wood is her optimism. Mm-hmm. You know, she has, a, you know, amongst all of the people saying no and taking pot shots at her on Twitter, she is someone, and her fund is a fund that has participated in the massive upswing due to all of these tech stocks. And you can't take that away from her. And and she's ultimately being guided by her optimism as opposed to the fear of loss that a lot of other people are tempted into. 100% agree with that. So yeah, I actually wanted to like talk to to you guys about this idea of this multi-generational wealth thing because I find it a great idea. Like I, I think it's really fascinating. And I've thought a lot about this actually myself in terms of, especially what you brought up, Ben, was the idea of that culture, right? I think that's really key in terms of the adherence to it. It's not just for you, but like for your future progeny and them to carry forward this thing that you've started. So yeah, like I was curious to know if you guys have like explored that further in terms of discussing it or, or, or looked at like ways to implement that. So yeah. I think it's an interesting topic because it inverts a lot of or challenges a lot of ways uh, people think about making money in terms of the purpose of making money. Usually it's self-centered. You want the riches, especially for younger people, to be able to buy nice cars and nice houses and, and have international holidays. 
that's one sort of common theme to obtaining money. And also the other key aspect to that way of thinking is to achieve it quite quickly. This inverts it or changes that thinking in the sense that it says, well, maybe making money doesn't necessarily always have to be self-centered and, and what benefits it can draw to just yourself. And it doesn't necessarily have to be making a lot of money for the third generation. Uh, it could be making a lot of money for some other purpose, you know, environmental such as or other, other climate change, for example, like you've touched on. But we wanted to show a simple methodology, you know, $35,000 that anyone could do, almost anyone, you know, living Yeah, in- I'm not sure most people can afford 35000 a year, but fair enough. Well, uh, <laughs> okay. Well, you, you have to adjust um, the two, fact- two or three factors that we've got in the model then. You could be the, mm-hmm. if it's not 35000 it's, the length of time or it's the amount of return that you're going to get each year compounded or maybe even the number of children that you have that can contribute to it right obviously your audience is different these are people who are like you know investors and stuff like that but the common person i i don't think has 35k sitting around that they need to put to work each year and you have to then ask the question why not um, right well because we have a system that's built where most people are making very very minimal level of wages for the level of work that they're doing right like i well, I, I think well, that there's well, a didn't great you say the unwashed wage in Canada is around about $80,000 no 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 i'm saying that people like around my sort of like neighborhood would be making that probably more, right? Mm. But the the median wage for a household, I think, might be eighty thousand. So it's like forty thousand for the husband, forty thousand for the wife, right? Yeah. And you know they're having to pay for daycare. That's like, you know, two grand a month, and then you got your rent, and then you got like I'm just saying that most people do not have thirty five thousand kicking around. I'm not saying that there's no one. I'm just saying that the average person, median person, probably doesn't have that to, available to invest. Is there a but, way for the average household to get to that point? Like one thing we haven't explored is the fire movement and frugality. But I think you make a great point, Doug. It is pretty optimistic, 35 grand a year. But I think maybe what Ben is prompting us to do is to consider whether we're being overwhelmed by the essentially our commercial and capitalist systems uh, use of temptations to make us spend money on things we really don't need. I wonder if there was a, a brutal rationalization of people's purchasing habits. Maybe you could get closer to, to 35 grand a year than the average person could get closer to that than they think they could. I think a more realistic thing and maybe more people would find relatable is like maybe you could find $500 a month, you know, to put away. 35,000 is a big number for most people in the world, I would say. Like there's a very vanishing small percentage of humans on this planet that could put away 35, whether we're talking Aussie dollars, Canadian dollars, or US dollars, I think that would be a lot. And uh, and so part of Australian salary, sorry to cut in, as far as I'm aware, the average Australian salary, at least, and this is in Australian dollars, obviously, the terribly cheap currency, <laughs> is $85,000 a year, which after taxes is basically call it $65,000 a year. So right. yeah, 35 grand is half or, or more than half the average right. take home. 
and that's right. that's before any living expenses right like so yeah. I'm, I'm just looking at basically in canada the median household income family income is eighty eight thousand dollars right yeah so it's about the same as australia right right and so I'm, I'm just saying like i i'm i'm not a rich dude right like i might have worked at a hedge fund and this and that but i'm not you know i'm not rolling in it and like i i I don't know. I'm just saying like 35,000 to a lot of people, it's just sort of like, what, what are these guys talking about? <laughs> whereas, whereas if you're, if you're talking about something that's a little bit more, I think attainable for the average person, it might be a little bit more relatable for them. I, you're, you might not yeah. get to your billion dollar goal, but it might be more realistic in terms of like, okay, if I compound that out, what does that look like? That, that was exactly why we chose 35. It right. was I, I know, get I know, to a billion dollars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do we have to do? <laughs> But, but there's, um, I mean, but, like, but you do want to have big audacious goals. You do want to have big audacious goals. And I think billion dollars for most people is a big audacious goal. And also it's not going to come without sacrifice. You know, whether you can get to $35,000 or not, if it's $500 a month, does require some sacrifice. Uh, I do get your point in that there does need to be some re relatability if it is too large. Like if we had have said, um, $200,000, um, yeah. then it just becomes so much more removed. Right. They just switch off straight away. I think the concept is more value than the actual end goal of a business. Sure. No, no, I agree. And, and what, I'm, what I'm interested in is in terms of like, um, so what I've tried to think about is that culture aspect in terms of thinking about how does one sort of go across generations and instill your values and viewpoints in terms of like, here's something that I've started, right? Like I started putting away this money, but it wasn't for me. It was for my children. And their purpose is not to go spend this money. It's to do the same thing that I did, add to the pile, right? And I think that's the interesting aspect to this is to, it's to add to this pile that's existed before me and leave it bigger than what I found. And, and, and eventually along the way, I, I think of it almost like an endowment model where you have something where, and you also have to branch across, not just because family becomes fragmented, right? Like who's family, who isn't family, and how do you adjudicate as to who's part of this and who isn't? I think that becomes a very interesting question. And then again, instill this value across all these people that may or may not have any relation to you and, and get them to buy into this idea. And, and it's almost like a, an endowment model or a tontine where it's like, you know, you're sort of investing into this thing that could potentially pay out to you. I don't know if you guys have heard of this, but like there's this thing that they've de they're developing or I've seen around where if you're a young professional that's like going and becoming an entrepreneur to hedge your risk in terms of like going homeless and losing everything, they pay a little bit of money each month into this sort of like fund. And the fund is there to basically bail out entrepreneurs that are like, you know, failing out of that group, whatever the group is. And the people that are super, super successful are like the right tail of the distribution. And they're able to like basically put a bunch of money into this thing. As you go along, you put more and more money in as a percentage of your income. And, but the idea is to kind of allow people that otherwise wouldn't be able to do entrepreneurial things to take those risks because there's no other safety net for them. And I love that idea. I, I like to me, because you guys mentioned the idea of, of um, liberation, right? And I, I love that concept. In fact, one of the ways that I kind of describe 
building the kind of portfolio that I want to build, it's a freedom machine, right? The idea is that you put money into this thing and eventually it gets to a scale where you never have to work again. You can, it's fuck you money is what I call it, right? Like it's just your ability to go do whatever you want and never be beholden to anyone else, right? And, and that's incredible and it's like really um, freeing. And I think that's a seductive idea to most human beings. And I think that's maybe a way that you can build that culture, but it's also, you know, you have to have this sort of flip side of the coin of responsibility too, right? Like, so that's a very seductive idea, but it also requires you to then do the hard work in terms of adding to the pile. And that's the thing I think most people don't want to do, right? And so, well, you, I, I think um, you raise a really good point there is that even though you're making the contributions and you may not see the billion dollars at the end yourself, um, that you do get benefits out of it. And the, the two benefits, most obvious ones are you're achieving some something greater than yourself, but there is also that risk mitigation for, for the individual. So if right. 15 or you know, 20 years into this and you um, suddenly lose your job and everything goes pear-shaped, ideally you've, you've built up a portfolio behind you that means things are gonna be okay for the next couple of years. Right. And, you know, and then the danger is always like, so the, I think you also have to have this sort of committee mm. approach in terms of how you're making investment decisions, because if you leave it in the hands of just one or two individuals, they could go YOLO bet the whole thing away and, and it would be disastrous or Bitcoin, right? Like it, Now, as a result of this interview that we've enticed Ben back into leverage. <laughs> I hope not. I hope not. But like, you know, like, I don't, I don't know if in Australia they have a lot of these sort of like family dynasties that have like come and gone, but here in Canada, you know, we've, we've got more than a few yeah, Rupert Murdoch. Okay. Is Rupert Murdoch one? Okay. But like, uh, have you, that's the only one. Australia's only 200 years old in terms of um, Western settlements. So there hasn't well, been. So we're not, we're not old either. Like Canada hasn't been around that long, like about 200 years as well. But, you know, we have these, these families like Seagram's, you know, this was like this big liquor company. Um, and what happened is like, this is back during the tech bubble. The, the empire went to this son and he basically bet the whole company on like being, you know, an entertainment company. And, and so it became Vivendi Universal and all this other stuff. And he pissed away the entire fortune, basically. Like, you know, this was like multi-billion dollar empire that had been built on a very stable business which is alcohol right like how do you fuck that up but <laughs> and and so part of the reason why it became this very successful family dynasty is that we didn't have prohibition in the 30s in canada the u.s did and so they made a killing selling bootleg alcohol well not bootleg here it was it was distilled it was normal and they were smuggling it across the the you know the the great lakes into the u.s and making a, a huge fortune and from there you know their family took off and and all it took was one generation it's called shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves you know it's it's this idea that within three generations you can completely piss away whatever fortune you've, you've given and i look I've, I've dealt with people who have a lot of money on the private wealth side and all of that and that's a big concern right like their kids are fucking useless because they haven't in, been involved in building anything right and and these other people they haven't been exposed to the sacrifice of the grind right 
you know? I and, think and that's so, what you were trying to get at when you initially posed this question to us. You know, right. I, I guess you were, you were wondering if we understood really the meaning of what a child of enormous wealth looks like. Is that what right. you're saying? Like they're, they're basically, in, in a sense, are kind of useless or... Well, not useless, but you've taken away something that I think everyone faces, which is now I have to go do something with my life. And if if you've got literally a family fortune of a billion dollars sitting, you can do nothing with your entire existence if you choose to, right? You can afford to be a useless so-and-so. Right. There are examples of where dynasties have occurred and, and stayed a long time. Rothschilds is one of the examples that's given in the Family Fortunes book. And they um, another very famous example would be Queen, the Queen of England and her um, dynasty. And how's, how's that going? <laughs> that family is falling apart literally right now. Like because of you Canadians. <laughs> She's still one of the wealthiest women in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she's also lived for almost 100 years. Like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about like... Where, where are they going to be in 50 years, though? They're still they're I, more like... I, I, would, I would say to you that they're gone. They're parasites. <laughs> they will be wiped away in the course of human history. They are an anachronism currently and one that is tolerated because, you know, they're not sucking up too many resources. But give it 50 years? Are you kidding me? How, how they're the hell vestigial. is it? They're vestigial. To use an Elon Musk term, which I love, yeah. they're, they're a vestigial part of our culture. Yeah, no, they're, they're done. Anything that's like based on blood, in my opinion, over with. Like, I, I deeply believe this. Like, so that's what I'm saying is that this idea of family, I think you have to be more nebulous. Like literally I was thinking like, if I was talking about, you know, my sort of family, quote unquote, and, and creating the kind of thing that you're talking about in terms of creating massive wealth that is transferred over to, to these future generations, uh, you know, to me, it might be something as simple as I've, I've written this kind of thing that explains if you agree with it and you share my last name, doesn't matter if we have it, then you're family and that's it. You're part of the tribe. And, and I think you kind of have to think of it that way in terms of like, I, I don't know if you guys have ever read the selfish gene, but that's actually where the term meme comes from, right? It, it's, it's at the very end of that book, Richard Dawkins talks about so he talks the whole book about genes and how we're basically products of our genes. And then he's like, oh, last chapter, by the way, we also have this thing called memes, which is the handing down of ideas through humanity. And that can override all of this other stuff that I just talked about. <laughs> and so a meme is the idea of like an idea passed through generation after generation after generation, right? And, and the best memes so far, the most durable ones, I would say, have been religion, right? That, that's been the thing that's been... Uh, probably the most strongest meme that's existed in history, recorded human history. And I think you have to take some some cues from that in terms of how does religion approach that? How do you I love this idea. We, we should start a meme right. for our compounding machine. Yeah. I, I, I just think that, you know, you have to think about this because um, I, it's, it's sometimes it's a disservice to leave a huge amount of money to children that are not prepared for how to deal with that. But like this is about, we're getting bifurcated again because as parents, simultaneously, we want to give our children, we want to put them on a rocket ship. Sure. But also, we don't want them to be useless fools. Right, exactly. I, I, it's so interesting how this to... interview is leading to all of these conflicts. But the... and, and it's, it's how do you deal with this <laughs> conflict? 
But you're, you're, you're a recent father, right, Will? Yeah, my daughter was born in November. <laughs> oh, congratulations. So, Thanks, you know, it, and, to you and, too. <laughs> thank you. And, and, but, you know, it's one of these things where, especially as you start to see her development, right? And, and it's been this case for us is that like, you know, we love our son. He's awesome. But, you know, there's, there's this aspect. And I think partly because we've all been quarantined together, he's so used to having us here all the time with him that I worry about the effect on him in terms of him being independent and, and seeking to try and fail. That's one of the biggest things that I find is a pet peeve of mine right now with him is that he just says, I'm no good at this. And so he gives up. And I'm like, I keep drilling this into him is that, so the way you get good at something is you have to try and fail and practice and keep doing and keep doing and keep doing. And that's how you get better. You, you know, need to go through a crucible. Right. A crucible is good for you so long as you survive. Right, exactly. See, that's what I'm saying. So, so this idea that, like, I get it. Like, obviously, we want to make our children's lives as smooth as possible. But there is a point at which you make it so smooth that they are incapable of being of having any grit of being able to take any kind of setback and be able to bounce back from it and okay, i think so i've got an idea how about then an intelligent way to navigate these waters is to have initiation rites to have deliberate crucibles that you put your children through maybe you know a stereotypical one is to send them off to the military they all have to do military service or you know whatever the equivalent is if you're maybe they have to hunt their own meat <laughs> i wasn't going in that direction i i think maybe the idea i was thinking of is like if you're kind of running it like a fund like an endowment fund that would be like you would you would never give all of it over all in one chunk to some, any one person but instead, the idea would be, you know, it's, it's almost like an incubator approach, like a startup incubator, right? So show me an idea, and I'll fund a little bit of it, and you show me that you can scale it, right? And if you can't, then that's fine. You know, you fail, move on to the next idea, right? And we'll, we'll give you a little, little stake to be able to go try again. And so I, I think something along those models where it's like, go find something you're passionate about and go pursue it and go do it as well as you possibly can. And if you fail, that's okay. At the end of the day, you're not gonna end up starving, right? So you have enough of a sort of safety net that you can go take risk, but not take such stupid risk that you would be betting the whole fund on anything, right? And I think that that type of concept can be helpful in terms of like looking at how venture capitalists think about this type of thing. Kleiner Perkins Caulfield Buyers is like one of the longest running, most successful venture capital firms out of Silicon Valley. And they have a partnership model and it's existed for a long time. And those original partners left long ago and it's continuing, right? And they're still funding these new ideas. And how do you, how do, you do that, right? Like, so how do you run a family fund like a, a VC or a private equity or an endowment fund, that type of thing. So then this is the next step for us. We need to model ourselves after Kleiner Perkins. Or Y Combinator or whatever, you know, like they, they do demo days and that's what they're kind of famous for, right? And, and so I, the, the idea of fostering that sort of like try something, fail at it. Failure is not failure. Failure is learning, right? And brush yourself off and try again right? And, and that's what you have to do. You really have to go eat shit for a while before you figure things out. And, and you know, I think part of the problem is, is that as humans, that's the hard part of life. 
And we want to avoid that because we want to avoid things that make us feel bad. Um, what you're saying is that what the system that Ben and I have devised, or really that Ben's responsible for, I'm going to pin this on you, Ben, <laughs> is that we will fail as parents because we won't expose our children to the shit eating, the necessary shit eating uh, phase to make, right. to, because if you don't eat shit, you won't develop cunning. And if right. you're not cunning, you'll be vulnerable. Well, it's, I wouldn't even call it cunning. To, to me, grit, right? Like that's a, a big sure. area in psychology yeah, the these same, days. Same sort of right, right. Uh, domain. <laughs> right, right. So, so I think, you know, building grit is a really, really important character trait that we all need to, to do more of in, in terms of What I'm of talking like, about is naivety as well. Like essentially, right. it, it's, it's to, to go back to religion and, and, and Eastern thought, that's Buddha, right? Didn't Buddha come from a rich family and he went out into the world? I got news for you. Almost every philosopher comes from a rich family. So yeah, you're right. <laughs> the, the thing is that wasn't he, he didn't know what the world was. He right. lived in a walled garden because his parents were, as parents, we're, again, we're faced with two things. We want to protect our children for God's sake. We don't want them to die. But you can't only be successful at that. You also need to be successful in producing the capacity for them to protect Right, right, exactly. Yes. And actually, I think that like, you know, this idea of protection, it's against the really catastrophic tail hedge or the tail risk, right? Like, so dying, yes, you know, my job is to make sure my son doesn't stick his finger into the electric socket and kill himself, right? But at the same time, you know, him trying to build his Legos and failing at that is, is a good thing. And when he gets frustrated and, and wants to throw things because he's a toddler and he doesn't have the emotional capacity to deal with failure, that's a learning experience for him. And, and he's going to have to to do that. And like, you know, the thing I get frustrated with sometimes is just like, you know, I, I try to keep saying to him that like beyond just trying, it's like you're super lucky. Your existence is so blessed in terms of where you live and, and your reality. You have the luxury of saying, I don't like this cartoon. I want to watch this cartoon on demand. And you have the luxury of saying, this food is yucky and I don't want to eat this. And, and that really I, I just kind of enrages me because I'm like, there are literally people that they don't have the luxury of any food. And you're sitting here saying that, uh, you know, this meal that I prepared for you is yucky when you haven't even tasted it. it it's just, you don't understand. And I, and I lecture him and there's some comprehension in his head because he can tell daddy is frustrated right now. And, and he's saying a bunch of words to me and like, you know, some of it starts to register because I'm just like, I, you know, I won't tolerate this. Like you can go to bed hungry and, you know, eventually, yeah, I'm going to feed you or whatever, but there has to be a cost. To, to making decisions. And that's another thing that I'm always trying to ingrain in them is that behaviors, good behaviors have good consequences, bad behaviors have bad consequences. And there's, there's a price to be paid. You know, you can make a choice. I allow him to make choices. But when that choice is a bad choice, you know, here's what happens. What you've brought up then is the paradox that the incredible display of human grit of surviving Ben's compounding plan could produce offspring with the least amount of grit one has ever seen. Correct. You're trying to get Ben and I to incorporate in our plan. The child doesn't merely benefit from our grit, but from this somehow develops sufficient grit to carry on the compounding. Yeah, and I think Just more importantly, it's, it's, what's, what's the larger goal? 
right? And like you guys yeah. said, it's it's like in your heads, you're imagining, you know, luxury apartments and, and condos and Lambos and all of that stuff. And to me, I'm just like, that makes no sense because- if well, that, you- that was to uh, following Tom's point Tom raised is that the dopamine reward system is a way to juice us up. Yeah. And a part of that to leverage the dopamine reward system in this incredibly long-term context You need to use episodic future thinking to trick your brain into being motivated in the face of what is going to be a dopamine drought. No, no, I totally, I I understood all of that. What I'm getting at though, is that, that if that is the focus, you will never achieve that in terms of, of, of saving the money that you're talking about saving. But more importantly, if that's the sort of end goal for your children, they'll piss it away. And, sure. and, 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 if, and if their children's children are the ones that like are thinking that way, they'll piss it away. And, and, yeah, so, well, and, and, yeah. it's, and it's not a big enough thing, in my opinion. It, it, so yeah. driving a Lambo to me, I could care less. I, if I don't own a car, I, I never terrible. have. I hear they're the I, worst cars to drive. <laughs> they are. But from what I understand, I've never driven one, but I've never owned a car in my entire life. I, I don't care if I ever do. I really don't. I live in a city. I ride a subway. I have a bike and all of this other stuff. And I, I can get a car on demand with like the services that are available now. So all of that, I don't care about at all. Like, it, like, and I learned that from my parents. They're immigrants that came here with nothing. And my father now has a seven figure portfolio, right? So that was just through them being frugal, uh, investing, working hard. That's their thing. And that's what I learned. And, and we could care less about living in mansions or, or whatever, whatever. The point was, is that they have money that they'll be able to hand down to, to successor generation. And to me, I'm like, okay, how can I compound this? I'm, I'm thinking the exact same things you guys are into this huge amount of money that I can hand to my son. But how am I going to do that where he understands how to handle all of that, right? And the jury's still out. He's three years old. I have no idea. He could be a junkie growing up. I have no idea, you know, and, and that happened in my father's family. They had land and some of them became addicted to opium and they sold off their smoke. But what I was trying to get at is that I think there has to be a larger vision for what that money is really for. And it's not for consumption. It should be for true investment, right? If it's for investing in human capital, right? In terms of the people that are involved, great. If it's in terms of uh, investing in their ideas and their businesses, great. If it's investing in sort of the larger communities that these people exist within in terms of like, you know, donations and, and, and capacity building and all of that, fantastic. Those are things that inspire human beings. I honestly don't think deep down inside Lambos are truly inspirational things. They're aspirational but not inspirational. Yeah. And, and so I, I think that those are, are really distinct things that you have to think about. I think it's laudable the goal that you guys have. And, and, and I like the idea and all of that. I just think you need to think a little bit about the structure of it. Like, you know, I, have in terms one. Of- I have one. It's so one of my uncles is a radio astronomer. His crowning achievement in his career was to start the square kilometer array, which is a telescope that's distributed across thousands of receivers across a hemisphere, okay. across multiple continents. So right. what this thing is going to do in the first 20 minutes of operation is collect more data from the cosmos than has ever been collected in the entirety of, of human astronomical observing history. That's so, amazing. Yeah, it is. It's incredible. It's great, actually, that his intellect was trained on that as a target than some of the other targets that intellects are, are trained upon. 
But right. what, I, what I was thinking, like, so this is a member of my family and this is what he's chosen to explore. And, and in terms of a direction for the rest of the family that he's highlighted is going to another planet. Mm-hmm. This is, again, to mention Elon Musk, what he's chosen to do with his right. windfall from PayPal. I think it's what we should be doing, joining the race to Mars, basically. I think you can set up the structure, as you say, Juddy, that it's for investment, investment both financial but also in the individual and resources of the family. But there should also be some sort of structure around that and obligation on those investments. You could almost think of it as a bank where any sort of contribution from that fund into someone's education or entrepreneurial that's needs to be repaid in some form by the people that receive them. So that way it continues to be... Right, perpetuating. Perpetuating and also then you need to layer it both in legal structures, maybe you set it up as a trust, I don't know a lot about Mm -hmm. And then also the other nice thing that I like that you mentioned is some sort of committee decisions by people in the family before, you know, it can't just be falling into one person. Yeah, for sure. Like, I I think it's a huge responsibility to manage like a whole bunch of money if you have no idea how to do it, right? And and so it almost becomes like part of the culture would be teaching that, right? Like, I view that as my thing that I will be able to hand down to my son, hopefully. Like, even, even if he tells me he hates finance and investing, that's fine. It'll hurt my feelings a little bit. But at the very least, I hope I can teach him enough that it's sort of like, here's something you can do very simply that you can execute and be okay in life, right? In, in terms Just of, it. yeah, exactly. You know, and, and so, like, I, I think, that that's part of the whole thing is is about handing down this instruction manual for life. We are nothing to our genes to take something from Dawkins's book. We right. are short-lived vehicles for long-lived genes. We right. are not the story. We we right. are we're just a blip. Right. Right. Exactly. The real story so, is these genes. For sure. Yeah. And 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 I would say even more so. And like I said, he kind of just undoes all of that work by saying oh by the way memes might be the most important thing <laughs> uh, sure. because they they're they're passed on on a much grander scale right like uh, an idea like you know islam or whatever it took over the world right and same with christianity it's insane when you think about it and to me those religions are literally insane but nonetheless like people believe this stuff and adhere their entire lives to it and that's staggering when you think about it like that you know we live in a world where like that has such a dominant influence and there's people literally like you said trying to go to mars right now it's it's and we have rovers on mars so there's this crazy dichotomy in terms of where we are right now as a species like there's it's some funny people that, how there's, there's these dichotomies uh, memes versus genes this is another there's, there's all these battles that this interview has brought up but if you think about it, the religion, say only 2,000 years they've been in existence, essentially. It's not a human, how long have humans been on the planet? You know, how, how long have we thought of ourselves as humans? It's 400,000 years. 400,000. So. Uh, I'm not so sure about that. I think modern homo sapiens have been around for about 100 to 200,000. About 100,000. So 2,000 years we've had Christianity. So 2% of the t- entire existence. So you could use that as an example to show that memes maybe don't last as long as the right well I, i'm just saying like there's a, there's a fair bit of durability within like 
because yeah. human recorded history is like you said very short and and here's another thing that i think is important to also remember as investors is like markets have been around for like the data you can go back on with like equities and bonds is basically like two to three centuries tops right and accounting and, has been around four thousand years is it four thousand really yeah like you're talking about double ledger or just basic accounting i'm not sure but that was something that tom made a point about when he was okay. doing the research for his interview maybe it just i think it, it's been around for four thousand. i think i think it, i think the double ledger was in italy um with like the renaissance the uh, okay it was um, the medicis or whatever that came up with it and and that's why they became very successful bankers um but but you know when we're looking at stock market history it's like basically you have a, a couple centuries of good data right and and within that uh, you know, one thing I didn't mention in our sort of main interview there is that the U.S. is an outlier. And, and I think it's something that is often kind of ignored or overlooked as an equity market. It is an outlier. It's by far the best performing developed market in the world, okay, over the last century. And it's also the one that has the most data, right? And so that's the one that everyone looks at. But there are plenty of stock markets that did not do well, like, you know, Germany, for example, um, you know, they had the Wehrmark Republic and they had, you know, the, the Third Reich. And so, you know, that fucked up a lot of people's money. And you had the Bolshevik re revolution where the Moscow exchange shut down in 1917 and didn't reopen until the 1990s, right? Um, you have Japan that's like, you know, the sort of big cautionary tale for, for developed markets today, which is like, you know, 30 years of, of sideways markets. Um, so, and, and you look at the UK, I, I actually like check this chart myself um, in terms of like major developed markets and send it to you. Where did I save it? Just one second. Um, so basically, you know, if you look at the, and again, like if we look at international markets, like the French market, the CAC 40, doesn't start until like 1989. Can you believe that? And so, you know, I mean, like, they had a stock market. No, no, they had a stock market. I'm saying the, the CAC index, this 40 index yeah. wasn't started until like 1989, right? And, and when we're doing these analyses on financial time series and all of that, it's based on these indexes, right? Yeah. So, so, uh, this is what I'm getting at is that like, you know, and, and you look at the, the CAGR, the compounded annual growth rate since those periods of time, like since 1989, France has done 4% a year. You know, the UK has done 4%. A year. The S&P 500 is eight and a half. Uh, Nikkei is like negative 14 basis points per year. Uh, Canada is like five and a half percent. Uh, Germany is the next best performing major market at seven and a half percent. Australia did 4.34 percent. Uh, Switzerland does 6.3 percent and the Netherlands did 5.4 percent. So, you know, like I said before, like all of this can work as long as you keep putting money to work in these indexes. But the, the variability in terms of like if, if I go from the S&P 500 to Japan, I've gone from eight and a half percent to negative 14 basis points. If I go from, you know, S&P 500 to uh, France, you know, we're talking about half the returns. So when a French investor is looking at, you know, how do equity markets perform, their reality is very, very different than what happens with the US. Um, but that's, I, I suspect that for, to a large extent, when they're looking at, you know, what does the market do, quote unquote, the market, they're probably getting a lot of data that looks at the US, right? Because I know that's what it's like here in Canada. I, I mean, obviously, we're right beside the US. But 
it's 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 that's the dominant narrative that people are, are going to right. show you the french market has has not gotten back above the highs of 2000 it's right. only done 5x basically since right. inception right so oh. so you know so that's what i mean is is just that like you know the when we're talking about a market we have to be specific about what market we're talking about and invariably it tends to be you know we're, we're talking about the warren buffett's of the world and we're talking about the s p 500s of the world but those are outliers those do not represent the vast majority of investor returns around the world and and i think that that's an important point that people should keep in mind when they're investing locally um is that you know you're, you're not necessarily investing in the u.s stock market you're investing in probably your own market or your own geographic region and that might have a very different return profile than these other indexes that most people are touting yeah there's so many factors and so many things you've brought up in this um interview jug i I've, ben and i've been joking that we want to become the joe rogan of finance <laughs> podcasting we've gone for three and a half hours now so we made it Okay. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't mean to keep you guys. If you guys no, have to please go. don't apologize. This has been the okay. best interview ever. Okay. Thank you. I, I, I didn't want to disappoint you guys. I'm just like some rando <laughs> off of Twitter that you saw. Oh, no. So, you know, I wanted to make sure that I bring the heat for you guys. So I've been counting surreptitiously whilst we've been going through and you've raised 35 terms. It's like this podcast is great for, for me and especially ben, Ben's the one that knows what he's talking about because he's a, a chartered accountant. I'm just a geospatial analyst knuckle dragger. So what this does for me is it, it's terrifying for me all of these interviews because I'm a total noob. It gives me a I have homework to do after every interview because there's so many things that I, I, I learn. But you've thrown off 35 terms that like, everything from left tail to premium, you used a great word that I only, the last time I heard that was during philosophy, you used the word qualia, which was great. Risk off efficient frontier. For the 13 asset classes, I got gold, land, currencies, volatility, short, long equity, pair trades, crypto, trend following, Hedge funds via ETFs, the S&P 500 convexity ETF, timescale diversification, and then stocks and bonds. I presume those are in there. And the last one you mentioned was World Tree. I don't think that's the 13th one really for you, but I put that in just to round it out. Sure, yeah. I think there, there are um, impact investments that can act as real diversifiers. In fact, I would say that this is something you could put in your portfolio. It's basically like investing in timber, but with a social impact. And timber is a, actually been a pretty phenomenal investment and it probably will continue to be even more so going forward um, because it, it is this like long compounding highly like it has its own internal rate of return that has nothing to do with anything else because it's just about the growth of trees right and that's what makes it kind of wonderful and the payoff when it happens can be very very lucrative in fact there's a guy by the name of james grant runs the, what is it called the interest rate observer or something like that he's, he's a big treasury nerd he looks at interest rates and, and bond markets and stuff like that and his recommendation i think it was like one of his interviews a couple of years ago he was like i think the best investment somebody could make is in uh, black walnut trees for the next like 30 years uh, because they you know you look at 
how timber is done as an asset class, look it up. It's, it's actually an excellent, excellent investment. And you can get into really alternative investments. Like I, I know the non-fungible token thing is taking off and all of that, but the collectible space in general, rare wines, rare whiskeys, and that type of thing are legitimate asset classes that you can invest in. And art is actually one of the best tax arbitrage or tax avoidance plays for rich people in the world. They literally never take delivery of the art. It just sits at a port in a holding place across yeah and and basically they're able to like it's it's another way for them to basically send money across borders tax-free that's really what it comes down to and so art wine uh liquors like uh like uh fine whiskeys and stuff like that those are legit asset classes you know and and i know most people would think like that's crazy, but it's, it's true. And in fact, you know, they do quite well. They're still correlated. Like, you know, during the global financial crisis, those things went down because rich people lost a lot of money, but as sort of quote unquote, alternative assets that are hard assets that benefit from this sort of inflationary concern that people have, not a bad place to be. All right. That's so much to take in. I don't know if you want people to contact you, but if people do want to get in contact with you, learn anything about you, how should they do that? Uh, I think Twitter is probably best right now. I, yeah, like I said, I'm, I'm kind of figuring out what my sort of professional next steps are going to be. Coronavirus has kind of fucked everything up right now. So uh, right now, currently, I'm just a stay-at-home dad. You know, that's my official title uh, slash student. I'm, do- I'm doing some courses right now as well. But but going forward, my path will be to manage money professionally. And so I kind of have to figure out how I'm going to do that and what it's going to look like and whatnot. But for the time being, yeah, I'm happy to connect over Twitter. My DMs are open. So if, if somebody wanted to get in touch and, you know, feel free. Okay. What's your Twitter handle? It's at Jagmavi, J-A-G-M-A-V-I. Very good. I don't know if I mentioned it to you guys, but like, you know, my portfolio, like what it's compounded at over the last nine years is 27 and a half percent. Damn. That's so, so you can do that. Like that's doable. Right. And, and I'm, I'm not saying that that's what the future return is going to be. That's during a period of time where the S&P did like 15% annualized return. That's not normal. The long-term return for the S&P is more like around 8%. Right. And, and so, you know, but even if you do half of that, let's say it's like, you know, 16, 17%, somewhere in that range, even 15% that, you know, that's, I think what you guys have in your spreadsheet is 15%, right? And, and believe me, that's very, very doable. Even with like something where like, if you, we didn't get into risk parity, but you could do like a risk parity portfolio with gold stocks and bonds. And if you lever that up two times, that's, that easily hits like 15% a year easily. And, and, and your risk profile basically looks the same as if you had held like an all equity portfolio, but it, it does way better than a, than a purely equity portfolio. And that's the magic of, of having diversified portfolios, right? And, and if you add leverage to that, like that's where the magic happens. So build something super stable and then add leverage to it. And then you make a lot more money. I'll leave you with this. I had a quote that I was going to give you. Ray Dalio, pain plus reflection equals progress. Thanks, Doug, dude. You're welcome.